get set, go. Looking through your portfolio, one of my big questions is traditionally when like you go to art school or you go to any sort of even a gallery or anything like this they try to encourage you to be like one thing they're like we want you you should do this thing and it's your style and it's what you'll be known for it's your sort of signature look or medium or whatever it is and through your career you have done a huge variety of different things you've worked in glass clay painting steel bronze i mean like crazy different mediums have people been accepting of that or is that something that people have been sort of like why are you changing so much well in response to your statement that art students are encouraged to focus that's exactly the wrong thing to do i call it mfaism and it's so you can come out with a professional looking portfolio and present it to galleries And that's a bit like salesmanship in my mind. I never went to art school. I have lectured at RISD and other art schools, and it's been an interesting experience. My education is theoretical mathematics and physics, and I have worked in material science, and so I know something about materials. But nobody encouraged me to go one way or the other, but... It does work against the system of trademarking or coming up with an identifiable image to market. So other than refinement, I I do work, you know, more than one in a series so I can refine an idea, but I have no interest in trademarking the way my work looks. In fact, quite the opposite. Okay, well, then that answers the question. The, the next question, of course, is like, how did you come to being an artist? So you didn't study art, you studied theoretical mathematics, which is utterly fascinating in and of itself. So how did you like, were as a child, were you creative? Like, did you like, how'd that path go from childhood to theoretical mathematics to making art? I was no more or less creative than other people. I was a naturalist. I spent a lot of time outside, really moved by the wind, leaves, shells, sand, all that. I wasn't supposed to be an artist, that's for sure. I was raised in a family with business and all that. And in fact, my older sister was the artist, and she was supposed to be an artist, and she is. She could draw photographically at a very young age, and I can't do any of that. I really don't think I was supposed to be an artist, but it's too late to change. So I'm all in. How did you go? Okay. So you graduate college with theoretical mathematics. What's the transition? What sort of, I guess, what's the catalyst? What changed you from saying, I'm going to be a theoretical mathematician to making bronze sculptures and all the different things you've done? I first started making things in Seventh grade, I made a laboratory apparatus for experiments in a physics class, you know, Bunsen burners and glass blowing. And it turns out I was good at it. So I sold the Cartesian divers. It was a certain experiment to other students in the class, two for a quarter. So, and at the end of the notebook that I was keeping, which I still have, I wrote, and now I am a professional glass blower. And I was 13. So I followed science through high high school and college. And I finished my mathematics requirements in my second year of college at Tulane University. And I took 
pottery in high school, so I took pottery in college and sold stuff rather than get a job. So I would go to the Jazz Fest in New Orleans and I would sell my glass and ceramics instead of having to to work. And I took glass blowing. They built a studio my third year in college and I was just hooked by the 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 liquidity and the the fire and the purity of glass in the furnace. And it was just an obsession. I would work all night long. I probably blew glass near 40 hours a week in college in addition to doing, you know, my science requirements and and all that. Because well, one of the pieces that I was most enamored with was your piece that you did in, where is it, Finland? The the waterfall, the glass waterfall, like huge fan of that. That's an amazing piece. And then, so you did a bunch of glass for a long period of time. And then you also then said you retired from glass. So I'd like to address that piece. I was working on a fellowship at Wheaton Village in New Jersey. And I had come out of the woods as a glass blower, and and this was my first like group professional type thing. And I was walking in the woods as I do, and I saw this glass uh, piles of glass capillary tubing under the leaves. And I cleaned it off, shoveled it around, took a picture. That was probably 1984, and then around 1989, I had figured out how to blow large glass and these things called cocoons up to 15 feet high. So I'm the person who took glass off the tabletop. And so it got onto the cover of an international glass magazine, Neues Glas, published out of Germany. And in it was a picture of this glass river that I had taken. And I totally felt like I was a fraud because I found it, but essentially I cleaned it up. And in hindsight, that's what artists do. They get to do what they want. And I went to a glass conference and people surrounded me. It was became a cult figure. I had done something apparently, which I didn't, I still thought it was fake. And then I had hung the cocoons in, in a church in Belgium and it was a 30 foot high installation, the blown glass cocoons. And it got to be world famous. And a curator at the American Craft Museum, John Peralt, asked me to do a 40-foot hanging installation with the cocoons. And I asked if I could, since I had already done that, do something different. So I I wanted to do the Glass River. And actually, I was asked to do it in Rouen, outside Paris. And so I did it for the first time in reality. And it came down three stories and got on the cover of Noise Glass magazine. So then it was official. I was really actually making them and instead of pretending to have made them. And then I did a 40-foot column at the American Craft Museum, which was the last piece of glass I made. And that was 1993. And so then, but then, I, I know, but then you chose to like, and I read somewhere that like, you chose to quote unquote, like retire from glass. Like again, sort of like what caused that sort of transition in your in your career? Because I mean, you were to a certain extent, you were sort of at the top of your f- field really and you're like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, a bit like Cat Stevens. And he's really yeah. quite iconic for having walked away at the right time. And I had blown glass significantly with the cocoons. I had made my contribution. And then I was casting glass pieces. You could see all this on my website, stevetobin.com. 
but up to a thousand pounds, seven feet high. I think they were the largest cast glass with color in it at the time. And then when I stood up the first, I call them doors, which ironically you can't go through because they're the physical impediment. You can go around them. So they stop your body and allow your emotions to move into them and be transformed by the color and the textures and all that. So when I stood the first door up, I told my assistant, Daisuke Shintani, who was a former student of mine in Japan, and I said, Daisuke, I'm done. And he was a bit horrified because he had left his country to work for me. And then I said, that's it. And it took me two years to finish that series. And then I was done with hot glass. And then I did installations with the capillary tubes that you're referring to in Finland. And I wanted to not hide behind virtuosity. In glass blowing. it's one of the most virtuosity things that, that man does. There's rock climbing, there's classical music. And I think that glass blowing, when it's done on the highest level, is, is so sensitive and complex. And, but I felt like virtuosity was like a bright light shining in your eye. You see well-madeness. And it's like if you see a beautiful woman, she may have content, but you're going to be blinded by the beauty. So the cast glass was more virtuosity of understanding materials and creating nature within the molds. A lot happened. Fluid dynamics it was kind of a simulation of galaxy formation and things like that. The same physics. But there was still a virtuosity of material there. And so the, the glass rivers, the water glass, was just scrap. It was all being thrown away. The factory where I had found the original river saved it for me. And I shoveled it around. My friends shoveled it with me. And it was more virtuosity of idea. So it's like I tied my hands behind my back. And yet still, I could make something that spoke. So it wasn't about making. And that was the end of glass for me. Well, maybe that's the balancing act between like, you know, mastering a technique so having an immense well virtuosity using your word of like skill craftsmanship technique and balancing in the idea of a concept and like coming up with that really amazing concept and then trying to find that beautiful correlation where you have both the mastery of the, the technique and the amazing concept because I feel like a lot of the artists these days and I'll even say like I probably fall into this in my own work where I rely heavily on maybe one versus the other. And so it's that eternal strive to try and find that beautiful balance between technique and concept that I find very difficult. It goes to our innermost psyche. We want to be recognized. We want our parents to be proud. We want to show off for the ladies or the men. It's like if you're a weightlifter, like with glass blowing, and you learn all these techniques just learn them all. It's like a weightlifter who goes to pick up a glass. He'll use all his muscles to do it. He will look like he's flexing just to pick up a little glass. So like if you're a painter and you like red, if you use one drop more red than the painting should have in it, it's decoration. And with glass, things are just so overmade with technique because you're like a weightlifter. You've learned all these fantastic techniques and it's very hard to show restraint. We all struggled with that because our ego wants things to be symmetric or controlled. 
And I find my best things, if I can be objective and not look at, at things for what I intended them to be, but for what they became, then they exist independent of me. I try not to measure my failure and to control the situation. And, and that, in part, might have motivated me to work on such a large scale. It's like, how can I get beyond my abilities so that the, the material and the process can create something beyond my, the limits of my little mind? Well, I find that like I the the construct that I've come up with, especially like when I'm teaching and all this different kind of stuff, is that it, like you try to be your best to be as prepared as possible. So whether that's learning a craft, learning a skill, learning whatever, and then and that's like seventy five percent of it, and then you allow for absurdity or randomness or whatever to happen because the that balance of like if you made a piece of art that like you had a picture in your mind and it turned out exactly that way that's i always feel like it's like oh okay that was easy i did that like it didn't push anything and so allowing for that that little extra something that that unforeseen that un unattainable but not even just unattainable but like so unique and bizarre that you couldn't have even even thought about it ahead of time that it just sort of happened that's oftentimes I find when the like truly magical works come out. Yeah, you, you probably need to prepare less so you have more room for spontaneity. At a certain point, I returned to ceramics, which I had done just kind of functional things in college and high school, and I used explosives to shape them. And it started off, I was showing off to my nephew, Jesse, and I put a firecracker in a block of porcelain. I had returned to clay because I had worked a little bit with Peter Vokas, and he was a big influence. He and Christo had come to Tulane, and I loved the expressionist energy of, of Vokas and, and then Christo's ability to rope in communities that were art uninitiated or disenfranchised and just you know, involve the people in a different way. But I reacquainted with Peter Vokas when I was doing bronze termite hills. And he said, Stevie, these are clay. Get back to the clay. He had a unique way of speaking at that point. And so I started making my glass doors in ceramic. They were, there was no glass, but I used that form. And then I was showing off to my nephew. I put a firecracker because that was part of the expression on those ceramic doors. I put a firecracker into a piece of porcelain and the explosion was a perfect sphere invading the cube, which is something you can't do on a potter's wheel. And it translated an explosion into form. And Jesse wasn't impressed. It didn't make a noise. It didn't blow up all over the place. And I watched this form develop and I was stunned. So the playful quality revealed again, I felt almost like a fraud because I wasn't trying to make art. I observed art happened. And it happened to have been at my hand, but it wasn't my intention. And then I built on that. So observation of natural events and nature really has been my, my teacher, my guide for where to go. 
I love it. I mean, I think that like when I look at it, I see it as sort of like a general, you know, I look at it in a very intellectual way. I'm one of those MFAers that you you have disdain for, which is perfect. No, not fine. disdain. I just um, I really can't pass judgment. Feel I'm not free allowed to, to pass judgment. No, it's perfectly fine. I it's am hard horrible, to undo. I it is. I'm a horrible elitist snob because of all my education. I'm fully aware of it. <laughs> I, I will own that. It's fine. Good. That's a starting point for recovery. I, I know it, it really is. I, and I should be in a 12 step program, but I'm not, but I should be in one. I was in one at one point in my life, but anyways, <laughs> the tie your hands behind your back and see what, what happens. What, how do you, how do you work? And maybe, maybe you'll free yourself from all that you've been taught. I'm trying. I actually am these days doing a lot of that. Like, cause like I was taught all kinds of things. Like I, my background is photography. So they always said that, you know, treat everything, you know, really great, you know, fine prints, beautiful, touch them up, make them look perfect. And I'm so over that shit. Like I'm all about destroying them and deconstructing them and, you know, and just removing all the, the, the traditional ethos of like the fine print and the beautiful, this and that uh, I'm over. It. So like I'm I'm on your side. <laughs> have you peed on them yet? I have not, but I have. So you're not quite them. there yet. I, I'm not there yet, but I have burned them. I've put them in the wa- washing. Did like the clothing washer. I have done the dishwasher. I've done like. I, of course, these days, I, what I do is I sand on. I sand into them. So I I do this thing where I build the print and then I deconstruct it by literally like tearing at the paper and sanding away at the paper so like i'm all about this this idea that you're using with this sort of you know you've got this form that you're creating with a with this ceramics and then you're basically deconstructing it by just blowing it up and then allowing that to be (laughs) you're just like that's the thing and i like it creation is destruction and destruction is creation the big bang destroyed whatever was here before it and So by using explosives in these geometric forms, I'm capturing a movement towards chaos and I'm capturing the event of the explosion. And I have to restrain myself because if I move a piece of it because it'll look better to me, then it's gone from kind of a photograph in ceramic or a document to a piece of pottery. So as soon as I change the truthfulness of the event, I've moved away from truth. And then it's just pottery. It's a decoration. So I have to restrain myself. It's like I, I have a scientific thesis. I have a set theory that I've created and I cannot stray from that or the whole thing collapses in terms of theory. But I also have to be careful. I'm not a scientist. I am an artist. And sometimes these rules that I set up limit the possibilities. So I have to know when to step out of that rigid scientific exploration process. It's hard. My personal problem is that I find it difficult. I I had these horrible fears of overworking. Like, because I've seen far too much artwork in the world that people have basically, like, like you're saying, like, you allow it to do a certain thing. And then if you continue to work on it, you've sort of destroyed it because then you make it into decorative kind of things. Like you're, you're, you're working too hard at it and, and it's overdone. And that's my biggest fear because I've seen far too much of that. Like I can, 
I can accept a a work that is is has still has a lot of potential, like like it's on its way, like it has a lot of the great little elements. I'm like, oh, I can still appreciate that, but as soon as it's gone too far, it's like, oh nope, don't like it anymore. <laughs> One of my favorite poets growing up as a, as a child was, I think Piet Hein. He wrote a book called Grooks, and in it, he said, uh, it's called on making toast. Toast it till it's burnt and then 20 seconds less. You don't know. And most people don't get far enough. Like I do work on a large scale and, and you know, how big is big enough? Most people don't get there. And how small is small enough? I would say 95% of what I make will fit in the palm of my hand. But most people and galleries will say, oh, I can't work with you. You're too big. It's too imposing to move your stuff. And, and where do you put it? And they don't realize that you know, the impression that is made because of advertising or whatever is the large stuff. But I'm making nests now out of bronze and they fit in my hand. And I love the, the scale of it, the intimacy. Well, and that scale is one of those huge things that I always like harp on. Nice both pun. in my work. Thank you. The, the Trying to figure out like what's the right scale because – Again, like I've seen far too much work that I'm like, oh, that that's beautiful. It would have been amazing if it was smaller, or oh, that's beautiful, and it would be a, a, you know empowering and colossal and experiential if it was big. And so many people, unfortunately, and you know, it's part of the artist lifestyle is that they only can do as big as they can do in their physical studio, or they only can do the size that they can handle financially. And so there are lots of these things that end up not having sort of the right scale for the work. But you've done everything. <laughs> it brings me back to elemental calculus. In basic calculus, there's a maximum minimum problem where what happens at the minimum? Like what happens? And then what happens at the maximum? And some pieces I make, you can hold it in your hand and other pieces are 50 feet high and it holds you in its hand. And so your relationship to it or the size of your head, or which is like a window. So I think all scales should be investigated and they function differently. And I don't think it's a better or worse scenario in all cases. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the the big stuff as well, or at least an aspect of the big stuff. So like, do you, are you, I don't even, I don't know much about your like practice these days. You say you're working small, but the question was, Sort of like, do you have a, a studio that you maintain that has that you're like building these large scale sculptural pieces in? Yes, I, I have a large scale studio. It's uh, about 300 feet long. There's about 500 solar panels so that, you know, it, it produces its own electricity. I have uh, half a dozen employees that have been with me an average of 20 years. So I have a crew. And An average of 20 yes. years? The new guy is like 14 years. We, we don't remember his name yet. And without them, I'm just a dreamer because I can't do this alone. And they have a lot of input in, in what I do. And they relieve me of, of the tedious work. I, I don't have to weld because they do a better job. And I shouldn't. And I shouldn't take the fun jobs away. I should be walking in the woods looking for a leaf or something like that, rather than getting bogged down in the mechanics of moving things and, and all that. 
I measure my shows in terms of tractor trailers. So we just finished an eight tractor trailer show in, in Naples and it went to San Antonio where it's going to open in April at the San Antonio Botanic Gardens. I've done Grounds for Sculpture, a 20 tractor trailer load show. And now I'm excited by these nests because I can ship an entire exhibition of 15 pieces in one box, UPS. So I'm all excited about that. Okay, well, wait. So again, so like you keep just changing. Like every, whenever you get to like the top of the game in something, you're like, nope, I'm done with it. I'm going to do this other thing now. Like you're you're now known like the most, probably the most recognizable thing would be the 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 piece in New York, the the roots outside the church in New York, the and Trinity so sort of the Trinity roots, which is what people sort of know you for at this moment. And you're like, okay, I've done that. So I'm just, now I'm going to do something completely different. <laughs> like, <gasps> There's a reason for it. I did this Earth Bronze series where initially what led into it is I made uh, a bone wall out of a thousand cast bronze bones. I met the Secretary of the Interior at a party in New Orleans. She said she started the first bison co-op. I said, send me a truckload of bones. And a couple months later, a refrigerated truck of buffalo bones came. Then I had to figure out what to do with them. And the nice thing about metal is you can actually weld it. And I was doing metal for like a year, direct casting, all very small pieces. And then I realized you can weld. And then my next piece was 40 feet long, a thousand bronze bones. And that led to casting the surface of the earth, where I went outside and put a yellow string around. It was actually goat pellets. I had a goat named Bambi in the pine needles and the pine cones and the sticks. And it was just the perfect moment. I think sunlight was hitting it through the pine trees and all that. And, and then I said, this is our future. We're moving from the bones to this. And I think that's the only time my guys have sent out their resumes because they thought, okay, he's lost it. Our future is goat pellets. And it took us a long time to learn how to cast the earth. And it's my own technique. I never studied anything, so everything's my own technique. In the physical arts, how you make something influences how it looks. If you use somebody else's process, you fall under their shadow. So I wanted to be a top-tier guy, so I don't use other people's processes. So the less I know, the better. And we figured a way to cast the earth with leaves, pine needles, cellular detail. You look under a microscope, the cells are there because I don't use a traditional lost wax process. And these were the earth bronzes. And then I went to Ghana to visit an assistant of mine, J.C. Sarpong, and I stopped the car every 100 yards at a termite hill. And I knew myself well enough at that point to know that my interest was more than, I mean, wow is a great starting point. But then I, it took me a while, arranged an exhibition at, with Ivan Karp at OK Harris. And he said, I can't give you an exhibition until I see them. I said, I can't mortgage my house to go to Ghana and make molds of the termite hills if I don't have an exhibition. So he agreed. And we did an exhibition actually marching up Broadway from the Natural History Museum up to Montefiore Park. It was in the 180s, I think. And that got into Newsweek in the science section, which I was very proud of, an affirmation of, of my scientific past. And it said at the end of it, it was in Newsweek, 
it said, next time you resist the urge of kicking over an anthill when you see it. Well, these were termites, so they got it wrong. But that was the point. You wouldn't see that in Art in America review. But in a science magazine, the, the reason I did it was to highlight the power of nature. So the science magazine got it. And then I went from there to the underground with the roots to show the power of the unseen. And then the apex of that was the Trinity route, which uncovered the power of the community. The world came together at that point. It was just such a worldwide devastation. And I took the root of the tree that saved the Trinity Church, the only structure that didn't come down adjacent to the World Trade Centers. Not even a window was broken. So I chose to work with that uplifting story as opposed to work. I was offered I-beams and things like that that were on Ellis Island or somewhere. They had stored some of that stuff for artists. And then I thought, I can't work in bronze roots anymore because this is sitting at the apex. I can't top the Trinity route, which took a year to make, 20,000 man hours, was donated and was back on the site. So if I made another one, it would be a step down. So I walked away like Cat Stevens. You got to know when to hold them, when to fold them. <laughs> and I, I walked away from casting bronze at that point. Something that you brought up too, though, is something that I, as the arrogant little shit that I was as, as a youth, didn't really understand that you seem to have sort of understood very early, which is that while the tradition is is that making art is like this solo practice and the creative artist, like in your case, is like out in the woods being inspired and all that. But in the end, it actually takes a group of people. It takes a community of people to either produce it. So like in your case, like you have a whole studio of people helping you physically produce things, but also it takes a group of an entire network and a community of people to sell it to coordinate so curators gallerists you know institutions all these kinds of things so like this this idea that it has still unfortunately sort of manifested that artists are these individual sort of uh, you know uh savants sitting in their studio making things is completely false as far as i understand it today and historically michelangelo would come in and paint the faces you know he did the part that other people couldn't do for him. Like with the bone walls, it was about composition. It was like a du buffet for me. And I never studied art history, so I might make the, the wrong references. But every one of the bones on a bone wall, there might have been 4,000. I welded on because they were about waves and composition and rhythms and speed and things like that. And then other pieces like the joints of the steel roots, I mark my transitions. And then it's one man, one month for each joint. And it doesn't get better if I do it. In fact, it gets worse because I don't have the patience and my guys are more skilled than me. And that was a big one for me, not to have to be the master of everything in my shop. In, in my glass shop, I could blow better, cast better, cut better, polish better. And it was oppressive for my very skilled exhibiting artists who, was, who were working with me. So, you know, you get a certain self-confidence where where you let everybody rise to their, you know, their capabilities, and then they contribute. Yeah, I know. And I, I burned far too many bridges in my youth. And I wish I had understood that when I was younger. And this is, as a teacher, I'm thinking about like, what are the kinds of 
personality traits, management styles, things like this that like we need to think of as being an artist. And part of it is working well with others, basically, and knowing your limitations. Well, I don't, I don't want to create a paradigm. I think that that in the arts uniquely, when you are successful, you close the door behind you because if somebody follows through those doors, they are in your shadow. And it's important when I talk to aspiring artists, first of all, I say, don't do it. It's not worth it because you put your heart into it and the, the world is not receiving it in the same way. People buy it for investment, commerce. How would I look in a Tobin? Multiple reasons, but it's certainly not the reasons I make it. And you have to get used to that. That's the decision you make when you become an artist. And, and it's why a lot of artists are unhappy because the world is not waiting in my case anyway, for everything that I do in the terms that I do it. I'm not complaining. I, I sell and place plenty of work. I have exhibitions, but it, it doesn't relieve the tension that went into the need to go to all that effort to make it. Well, you brought up earlier the idea of the desire to be respected and appreciated and all that. I mean, that, and that's a that's something that like I personally strive for. Like, It's one of those things like, in the arts, like the the highest form of flattery to me is is like earning the respect of X Y Z person. It doesn't even matter who it is. But, you know, somebody that you desire respect from, and but that's not necessarily true in most other industries. So, like the creative industries, we desire that level of sort of uh, appreciation, um, uh, respect, whatever kind of word you want to put to it. So acceptance, um, and, and that's a very difficult thing because. Most other people in the world, non-creative people, don't understand that, that that drive for that acceptance. Well, I think you've got to grow out of that. I think that what makes an artist a great artist, and, and it's more from earlier times, is, is that you are philosophic leaders of mankind. You're looking ahead and to still be driven by the need to appease your deceased parents or your friends or other artists, I think diminishes your philosophic essential contribution with your work. You just got to grow out of that. And a lot of our impulses are so basic. And by self-awareness and recognition of what you're doing and the potential to change the world. I had an interesting experience working in Ghana. I was out in the field. It was a long story how I got there. We had to get embassy papers and all kinds of stuff. And the equipment looked like flamethrowers. So we go through military checkpoints. And it was an amazing experience. And I mortgaged my house to go to Ghana to make termite hills. And there's a craziness to what I do. What I do is not normal. And when you see the pile of what I do and the range and every piece has to be perfect, and then I toss it in the pile behind me and occasionally I look back there and it's Indiana Jones's warehouse. It's endless. And who needs all this stuff? But anyway, so I went to Ghana and I, I just pulled the car over and started molding a termite hill on whose property? I don't know. I didn't ask permission. And some field workers walked by, said, what are you doing? And they stopped. And then they started working for me. I said, they, 
you know, can I pay you? And they had never been paid. They worked for a room and board or whatever, food. And they agreed on 35 cents a day. And so, you know, intending to do well, I, I paid them $2. And people started working, walking an hour or more for this. And so I, I totally messed up the local economy with good intentions. But anyway, they said, why are you doing this? I said, I'm an artist. And they said, an artist paints signs. I said, no, African sculpture is the best in all of history. And they said, it's not art. This is functional. This is medicine. This is fertility. This is healing. This is, you know, the whole range of human elements that, that are put into these things. It's functional for them. So now I learned more from them than they learned from me. I look at my work. What is the medicine in what I do? Why do I need to make it? Why do I need to spend all these resources, man hours, and occupy you know, space and all this? What is the medicine? And if it's not something new from me, then I don't need to make it. You brought up the fact that like you have lots of stuff like that you said you have like Indiana Jones warehouse stuff. I mean, this is one of the things that I often wonder about because like I joke with my wife that she's lucky that I work on paper because like we don't need massive storage units and and warehouses to to hold a thing. So like how do you store all this stuff? Like you've made some monumental scale things. Are they all out on exhibition all the time or do you have to have some storage facility. I don't I don't even know what you would have. I have a five acre facility where I have sculptures outside up to 50 feet high and I have 80 foot cranes and things like that. It's something you wouldn't normally associate with an artist. And people say, oh my God, you work so big. It's amazing what you do. And I say, look at the buildings they sit in front of. That's amazing. And they have to work. Nothing I do works, by the way. I can make things, you know, very well, but ask me to fix a sink and or or make something that works and it just doesn't. So so you so for all these like in, in incredible skills you have with like glass, clay, metals, bronze, all these different things, you can't do like household stuff. I've never once successfully balanced my checkbook, so I gave up many years ago. Yeah, my wife's an accountant, so I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. I I think I'm a bit like Rain Man. I have abilities. I used to be able to look at like you know, a branch with leaves and I'd know how many are on it. They would form groups with three left over and without any real counting I would know. And that has faded as my language has improved and you know, it depends what you're focusing on. But I have deficiencies. Rather than try to spend all my energy overcoming all my deficiencies, I delegate or, you know, I have an accountant or something like that so I can focus on things that come naturally to me. It's a very smart way to do things, quite honestly. I'm definitely a rain man kind of guy. You know, things will set me off. I'll be in the grocery store. Uh, I made bronze shoes with food in them. And they're not advertised a lot. You may not have seen them. I did see them. And I, I would go to the grocery store with two carts, one for eating and the other for art. And people would see me standing there with my head kind of tipped, like Rain Man, and say, are you okay? I'd be looking at a lemon thinking if you slice it this way, you let it dry for a certain number of days, then it's going to have more relief texture. And how's that going to translate 
in terms of process. You're losing the translucence, you know, because you're dealing with an opaque material of bronze. And all this is happening in seconds. And so I'm standing there looking at the lemon section. So I have noticed that about myself, you know, these oddities. There are far worse traits to have. That's nothing special. I have those far worse ones too. Oh, well, that, that, I don't, I hope, I hope you don't. I'd like, you know, I'd like to think you don't, <laughs> but we all have our horrible traits. Like, yeah, I'm sure I have a, I mean, you know, I'm not easy to live with for sure. Let's put it, put it that way, especially not during a, a pandemic lockdown. <laughs> it's, it has not been an easy time. So yeah. Anyways. Um, okay. I wanted to know about like, okay, how did you build your career? Cause again, you like you, you started off with no background in the arts and then you sort of just went into it somehow. So like, did you have galleries and do you still work with galleries or like, was this all just you on your own? Like, how did you like, you know, I'm, I'm dumbfounded at like the abilities that you've been able to achieve and I'm sort of like in awe and I'm wondering like, what, what, what trick did you learn that I didn't learn? Well, I didn't listen to anybody else. I didn't have an art school behind me to tell me what to do. I always use photography very creatively, initially myself and then other photographers. Then I aligned with a lifetime photographer till he passed away, George Ermel, and he made me famous. So I invested heavily in the documentation my way. I, it was, my photographs weren't objective. They were, people aren't looking at the sculpture. They're looking at the photograph. So I was trying to create a magic moment and an impression of how I felt about the work rather than how it looked. And I would, to the point I'd even set up, this is further in my career, the large pieces for that magic moment photograph, because more people were going to see it. So I had an eye towards marketing, I guess. But in college, I sold stuff at the jazz festival and things like that. I always saved my best works for exhibitions. And then I kind of made up my career. For example, I mailed out a postcard. I actually had a postcard, you know, when I, at one point I had a, an exhibition in New Morning Gallery, 1979. John Cram was a director in Asheville. I remember that. And I had a postcard. So I mailed it to a gallery on Madison Avenue. And I said, thank you. Or I just mailed it. And then a week or two later, I mailed a box of my glass. And I, on the card, same card, I said, thank you for your interest in my work. Here it is for exhibition. And then soon after I walked in and they said, oh, we didn't recognize. Did you shave your beard? Did you cut your hair? I said, yes, whatever. They had never met me. The point is they liked the works and or they wouldn't have put them out. But I don't mind saying that I did that because we got to be honest. You know, there's no easy way in. I think I was exaggerated on my resume. And then as real things came, or, I, or I'd write them before they happened, maybe, I don't remember. I would cross them off and replace them with something. I remember I did a workshop at Oberlin College in ceramics. They had a ceramics department with no professor. And they put up posters that said Professor Tobin. And all over, and I came in and I did the best workshop I ever did because I was not really a professor. And I 
had to overachieve. I, uh, it was, we did a wood firing that lasted days and the fire department came a couple times and it was really momentous. And then friends of mine from high school stood back at the back of the room when I was giving a demonstration and they said, professor Tobin, huh? That was, that was fast. And actually the college was going to offer me a job and my friends dragged me down and threw me down and said, you're all going to get us all kicked out. So I kind of, you know, exaggerated a bit or put myself beyond where I was at the time. But I was 22, 20. I was actually 20 at this point when I did that. So I don't know. I probably shouldn't be saying this, but I did. <laughs> Why not? It's it's amazing. Those are just some great stories. It's the kind of stuff that like you hear in the mythology of how people got created, like the whole, like Julie, was it Julian Schnabel that like called the director of the Houston museum every day until he finally gave him an exhibition kind of thing. Like, yeah, I love those stories. People ask me, how do I get into the art world? And I say, pick your favorite three people and show up or send them a letter and say, I will work for free and do their dishes, clean their floors, the essential things they don't want to do. Forget about the art. And when you run out of money, you say, now I have to go get a job. And if you've made yourself indispensable, then this your favorite artist is going to say, you know what, I'm going to hire you so you can keep doing my dishes or whatever. And that is a real entry point. I would stand by that now. If somebody did that to me, they'd probably get in my shop. And in fact, one of my top guys did that. He worked for a month and then he said, I'm out of money. I said, I'm not hiring. And he, he outpaced everybody. And he's been working for me now 20 years. Yeah, I know. I often kick myself. Well, not not kick myself, but like I wonder because uh, I got a, 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 the ability to be the assistant to Richard Avedon back in the no- mid '90s, and it I was supposed to go on. I was supposed to be there on Monday, and I, I had my college graduation on f- f- Saturday, I think, and I couldn't fly out until Tuesday. And and I called him up and I said, hey, I can't be there till Tuesday. And he said, if you can't be here on Monday, I don't want you. And I I didn't go. I stayed because my family had already pl- planned to be there for my graduation. So like I couldn't not be there for my own graduation that my whole family was flying out to be you know present for. So I chose family over my career. And I always wonder whether or not that was like a good choice or not. Well, you didn't have to make a choice. You could have gone on Tuesday and said, I flew all the way out here. Let me do your dishes, chop your wood, whatever. I guess that's LA. So, you know, whatever it is. New York. Okay. And, you know, he would see that you made that effort and you're there. And he might have said no, but the mistake you made was not going on Tuesday. Yeah, you're right. That might have been a test. And, and you failed that test by not showing up on Tuesday. Agreed. I did. Because he, yeah. he might have respected loyalty and, and stuff like that and say, I'll work for you for free. You know, I'm here. Fair. Anyway, yeah. could have, would have, should I live in regret a lot. I try not to live in regret, but I do often think about like, you know, paths not taken, choices, you know, artistic ideas not done or job opportunities or exhibition opportunities not fulfilled. Like you, you wonder if they could have potentially done something more or different with your career or whatever. And it's sort of like, ugh. Are you happy? Huh. Eh, certain parts of my life, yeah. 
I live in regret and I think, oh, if I had done this, done that. And then I think, you know what? I might not be happy if I had done that. I might be less happy. So you don't know the negative side. Like I could be more successful. I would like to be, part of me would like to be, I'm not a top tier name. I don't have the ability to make every piece I want. I want to make these steel roots 100 feet high so that you put one in a city, it becomes the heartbeat of the city, highlighting nature or, or the dancing roots romance or something like that. And so if I had the level of success and financial fluidity, I might not be happy because there is a lot of attention that comes with the, that element, and it may not take me where I should be. So it is a, a sort of a give and take because like the, I know a lot of people who sell on a regular basis and sort of make their livings purely by their artistic stuff and they're not often super happy because they're being pressured by collectors or gallerists or whoever to do certain things that maybe is not what they want to be doing but it's what they have to be doing and in many ways like you know like I'm pretty happy with my career at the moment because I can pretty much make whatever the fuck I want so I like that freedom. If you get too successful, like when I was blowing these glass cocoons, they were selling very, very well. And people wanted me to keep making them and variations and all that. And you become a slave to your own success. So I moved on and it's like starting over. And then when I quit glass, I had this show in Finland. It was a two-man show with Mark Chagall in underground caves in Finland. And I knew I could never top it. It was everything I had to say and beyond. It was better than me as an artist. And so I walked away and I was going to go on in music because I had put down music. I play woodwinds, saxophone, flute, clarinet. And I was doing that for, you know, started practicing. I never quit playing, but, and then an elderly gentleman showed up on my front lawn and looked at my, I had a 25 foot high glass teepee there. And he had a big grin on his face. And he invited me to join Anthony Caro's Triangle Workshop, which he was bringing from England to Allentown. I said, can I join? And I had never made metal sculpture. And he said, oh, these are the big dogs. And you know, I said, no, I want to jump in. So he, he, re- he rescued me. He was the chairman of the Philadelphia Museum of Art and big Henry Moore collection and it went well, and the first piece I ever made in steel got published in Art in America. And he said, you're my guy, you know, and he bought me 200 tons of steel, and he said, make it grand. That's a hell of a gift. So I got back into sculpture after having left glass only six months earlier, so it wasn't a huge departure. Mm. But I felt the glass movement was ending and moving more towards great Italian technique and collectability, a lot of money. And I just didn't feel that I could grow in the way I wanted within that field. So I left. All right. Okay. So you keep reinventing yourself throughout your career. And so I'm sort of fascinated by this. So like now, so pandemic is happening. The arts market and the arts industry is, let's say, in flux. (laughs) I do, you know, I'm trying to be polite about it. What do you see for for you as sort of the idea of where you're going to go from here? 
So we're jumping all over the place. There's no discernible chronology in this conversation, which is going to be hard for people to understand. But <laughs> Totally normal for my podcast. It's fine. Prior to the pandemic, for a good five years, I was more focused on parenting. And I mean, I was crazy. It's not the product. If you look at my work, the website and whatever, online, there's a lot there. It's not the product of a normal mind. And I had to normalize to have children. And it wasn't a good example to the levels of excess. I don't drink. I don't smoke. It wasn't bohemian behavior. But when daddy has experiments in the refrigerator that are inedible, that may not be you know, a great way to raise kids. So pandemic comes and I had not really been making new stuff. I'd been having exhibitions. People didn't know I had stepped back, making a little bit, but really, you know, focusing on trying to sell and promote or, and raise kids. And then this last couple of years, I am in my most creative, varied phase, I think that I've been in my whole life. I, I have had these explosions of creativity, but they were a far less mature artist. You know, those those things could all be destroyed. Now I I have I'm selling ironically well. I would say ninety or ninety-five percent of my income is six figure sales. So if I sell three pieces in a year, I get by. If I sell four, I could buy a boat or something or make more art, which is really what I do. So I've reinvest started reinvesting and I'm working on a a series, a range of things that I'm very, very excited about. Are you talking about the woodworking? No, that was, I moved I from- I saw a, that on your website too. I, I was in a, a small house, a 200-year-old house in a barn making my stuff and three kids living in one room had to get into a bigger house. And, and I moved into a much bigger house, more modernist, and needed a table. Talked to Mira Nakashima about trading for a table. She said it would take two years. And I didn't want to wait. And so I made my own. I put pearls in it. And when you sand down the wood, you, you cut into the pearls. You see the grain of the pearl. You see inside the pearl. And I got excited. And, and I have a, a new best friend, now five years or so, who has a thousand acres of sustainable rainforest in Costa Rica. And he took me there. I'd only met him maybe twice before to try making some unique pieces. And there were 22 people in the rainforest factory, and he gave me two top guys, and then he had to go off and, and take some business meetings. And he came back, and I had 20 people working for me. And he said, what's wrong with the other two? And I knew we were going to be good friends at that point. And I made a whole series of furniture. I, I like to think that it deals with a lot of the same issues as my sculpture. But no, that's not what I'm making now. Okay. That's fine. But so like these days, are, do you have galleries that sell, like represent you and sell your work? Like, I, I guess the question is, is like, are you consistently represented by a gallery or do you do exhibitions in galleries that sort of don't represent you? Right now, I do not really have a gallery in the United States. I had Ivan Karp from OK Harris, and he was just so top tier that when he passed away, he's just hard to replace. I would like to have a mother gallery or a series of galleries, especially with these small nests. 
you can hold them in your hand. The price is accessible at $3,000. And I love making them. I just love making them. I'd like to be able to sell them and keep making more. So I'm now, just yesterday, started an outreach to see if I can get back into a range of galleries. Uh, When I did glass, I had 50 galleries around the world. If one piece sold a month, that's 50 pieces a month. That's a lot, you know. So I would like more continuity and I don't want it all to be six-figure sales because I live, you know, on the edge of my seat till the next one. And it can be sometimes a year. So I'd like to, all these small pieces, I have thousands. I'd like to start getting them out there. So it's, well, just to be clear, it sounds like you are only an art maker. Like you have never really had another a job in your sort of outside of college career. Well, I drove a Jack and Jill ice cream truck. My father said, you have to get a job. So when I was 20, I did that. I never found the route. That's one of my isms. I, I'm always lost until MapQuest came along. I did things like I'd park by a Simpson pool in Philadelphia and there'd be some puddles and I'd throw dry ice into the puddles. So smoke would come up around the truck and I'd play my flute instead of the little bell that came with it. And some people still remember that, but I didn't make any money. I wasn't cut out for that. And once things were really bad with the glass blowing, I was in Virginia. And so I went to a bank. I figured I was trained as a systems analyst. I had passed a couple actuary exams and and I had a briefcase empty and a kind of nice clothes. And I get there and it's closed. It was a holiday. And I figured that was it. That was my one foray <laughs> into working. I think it's great because all too often these days, the most artists, you know, have to cobble together, you know, their income from various different side jobs and side hustles. So it's nice to hear that there are still artists in the world that basically can make money from their art. Well, actually, I recommend that people not try to support themselves with their art. Get a job as a waiter, waitress, it's good pay. So you're not having to put your art on the street like a streetwalker. And because it, Duchamp, I think, said you can't make art and sell art at the same time. And I know when I was selling the cocoons, I made more blue ones because people wanted that. And if you really are making, you know, trying to make art, it's impossible to live and die by it and your ego and your potentially supporting your family, your security and all that. So if you can separate your art making from the commerce of art, I think it's much better for your art. Amen. Yes. But I wasn't willing to get a job, so that didn't work for me. All right. I have a question. Like, I'm not sure quite how to phrase it. The, I, I, I use the word legacy is the term I'm thinking of. Like, how do people want to be remembered or like remembered for or something like that? Like, does that, is that enough of a question or a prompt for you? Oh, it's easy. I want to be rem- remembered as a good man and a good father. And where my art falls is not really my problem, although I have so much of it, I am worried about what's going to happen when I'm not here because it's hard enough for me to sell. I don't want to burden my offspring with having to throw it away or you know, it can't go to auction because it would sell for pennies on the dollar. So I am trying to figure that's, I, I now have a will, I now have insurance, I have car insurance, you know, all the things I never had. So I'm, I've got everything kind of lined up to be like a legitimate father type, 
you know, responsible person, but I don't know what to do with all my art. In the back of my mind, I'd like to have a foundation that survives on the, the sale of some of it and donate it to places, nonprofit. And I'm in the process of starting to talk about how to set up that sort of thing or throw it away. No, I don't. I don't away. want my heirs to be burdened by the va- it's Indiana Jones's warehouse. It's endless. It's I have five boxcars like full size on my property. There's a train track and they're all filled with artwork. You know, and that's just a little aside. See, the the thing I often wonder about is because like I I was a photographer for many years and so I have lots of lots and lots of images and so I'm always afraid that like if I just die in some freak accident that like people are going to look at my stuff and go like oh he thought this was magnificent and it, and I would never have shown that image <laughs> like, so like I'm more like potentially embarrassed by the idea that somebody else might look at my my body of work and think that this thing is magnificent even though I would have thought it was horrible that scares the hell out are of me. you a fair and objective judge I think that I'm the least objective when looking at my work. So I have, you know, school kids come through and I look through their eyes and I listen to their questions. And no offense, but most of my best interviews, I I had a six or seven year old, I I asked them to ask questions that I might not have heard. It was one of the better interviews. You know, they were off the wall questions. And so I don't think that you are qualified because you see your intent and your what you when you achieve your intent, that's probably the pieces that don't fly. And when you fail because of ego reasons, you want to feel like you're in control of things. I think you need a friend who is a curator editor that you respect. I 100% agree with that. I have this long standing like story that basically like every time I do an exhibition that I will put the piece that I believe is like the best piece. Like this is the epitome of the idea that I'm trying to express. And I put it like front and center in the exhibition. And then usually in the exhibition, like there'll be like an empty wall that I forgot about. And I'll just put something in that wasn't really what I thought would be part of the exhibition, but I'll put it in. Everybody loves that like last piece that I just threw in that I didn't think was great. And nobody even mentions the one that I thought was the like epitome of my artistic expression. Well, you should learn from that. Uh, there was there was a story, I, I forget the name of the great Japanese ceramist who influenced Vokas and, and Leech, and his name slips my mind right now, but every every exhibition would sell out. So they people would randomly get numbers and wait in line. And so he shows up to the exhibition, and there's a man at the very end lamenting. And he says, don't worry, in, invariably the best piece is the one that sells last. You know, it's just a funny thing. I don't think you're in a position. You're. I don't think you're qualified. You know which scratches your itch, but they're not for you. It's an, a perfect, lovely point. I agree 100% on that whole thing. The But now that leads to the idea, like, so you talked about having an editor or a curator that sort of looks through your work. How about writing the text that goes with your works? Do you get a writer or a curator to do all that stuff for you, or do you write it yourself? So I I published a book with Hudson Hills, a great art publisher. The owner was Paul Anbinder, and he sold it halfway through. So my my book wasn't properly edited. The great Donald Cuspit wrote the essay, and I was I didn't deserve a book at that time. 
but I had such a good photographic record that Paul Anbinder said, this is the, photo- the best photographic record or sculpture I've ever seen. He does one living artist or one you know unnamed artist, and then he'd do about 10 other books a year, like Motherwell and Rothko and things like that, and then me. And so Donald Cuspit saw all these pictures uh, there of these things called toy bronzes, which they were just stepping stones from glass to learning how to work in bronze. And he he wrote about them mostly. So my book, we built around that. And since Hudson Hills wasn't really editing it because they were in transition, it's just a horrific mixture of things that mostly I have thrown out since. And it's a wonderful, like 300-page, magnificently produced book. But the artwork in it wasn't curated. So three years ago, Rizzoli offered to do a book with me, and they are so good. And David Houston, who acquired a lot of the stuff for Crystal Bridges and all that, quite an art world person, agreed to write the foreword. And Phoebe Hoban, who wrote Basquiat, The Art of the Killing, and and I forget which one, Alice Neal, The Art of Sitting Pretty, and or I, I might be mixing up artists, but phenomenal writer, wrote the essay. And David said he wouldn't put his name on it if I had this piece in it, the glass torsos or the the bronze shoes, which he liked. But he said, it's just going to confuse people. And so he really strictly edited my book and I love it. And I could not have done it on my own. So, and he's a great, great friend of mine now. So I think that you need to find your equal or superior, you know, and have a friendship where you listen. And I didn't want to take these things out, but I was thinking they have to be in it. You know, it's like for sales mentality, but it's not a sales brochure. It's a document of my life, really. And it's it's called Steve Tobin, Mind Over Matter. And I had to fight for that title, but I like it. All right, last little bit. The um, You brought up having children, and I'm always interested about like, how did have the choice? Now, I guess the first question would be like, how old are your children or child? I'm not sure you didn't say. I have Sienna, who's 13, uh, is a twin with Milo, who's 13, and Noah is 17. And he wants to be an engineer, great at math. And and Sienna draws better than me and has great art talent. Although I really tell the kids, you're not allowed to be artists. I don't want you to because I cast a big shadow. But, you know, if you give that advice, if somebody has to be an artist, they're going to ignore you anyway. And Milo is the most annoying because at 12, he said, teach me how to weld. Now leave the room. And he started putting these things together. And if they were in David Smith's studio, people would think David Smith made them. There's nothing wrong with them. And I sell every one he can make, you know, $30 each. That's, you know, attractive price. But some have gone to important collectors and are with important pieces. And that's why, you know, part of me hates being an artist because even a 12-year-old can do it with no training. And there's really nothing wrong with them. There's no parts that I feel would have to be moved and all that. So, Well, okay. But the question would be, did the choice to have, well, I'm not sure if it was a choice on your part, but like the decision to have children, did that affect your career or affect your, uh, like your outlook on your life or anything like this? Did it change anything in your art practice, anything like this? I love kids. 
and I always have, and animals and every aspect of nature. And kids are extremely nature, like it or not. It's hard to civilize them. So I gave up so much to be an artist. I'm an older father, and I regret that art kept me from having kids earlier, but at least I still have them at home now. And it's a, a way to normalize, and they keep you humble. I don't know that they influence my work. I've made some of my big steel root sculptures with an identical smaller one, like a 30-foot high one, and then the same thing 20 feet high inside it. So that was me like regenerating with my son. So there are some abstract references, but I think it's a separate space for me, a normalizing space that is good for me as a human being. Great. Any topics you want to talk about that we haven't already touched on? <laughs> yeah, I can talk about essential couple things in my artwork. Okay, bring it on. So when people ask me about process, I say I don't like to talk about process. It's not like I'm trying to hide my techniques. But for me, the reason to make things is why. The essential question is why, to ask myself, why do I need to to do this. And part of why I change materials is to show that my artwork is not rooted in the material. And then my forms change so radically, you would never think that's the same artist who made little nests versus giant steel roots or glass waterfalls. But for me, changing form shows that I'm not really a sculptor. I see myself as a visual philosopher. And by extracting material and shape, you can see what continues. And that's the content. When you look across the different materials, what is my consistency? What is a unifying element? And I can't answer that because there are complex threads. But that is why I change materials and forms and scales. It's not rooted in scale. And I challenge the viewers and the art world and historians to distill what my essence is because it's certainly not rooted in material and form, which is ironic for a sculptor to say. I love the fact that you're talking about the, the, what I call like the why, the why, because I do portfolio reviews and I've looked at like over 3,000 done the, the portfolio reviews online and it's ridiculous. And the, the question that always comes up for me is that, why did somebody choose to make this thing as an artist? And then why should somebody else, whether it's a collector, a curator, or just the average Joe on the street, be engaged or interested in what they're producing? And sometimes it's hard because they often don't match and they often don't even complement each other in any way. So like sometimes your intention of your why you've produced something is not how people receive it. And you just have to accept that. But even if you don't accept it, there still needs to be, be a reason. So like, cause like I know a lot of artists that make things for themselves and they're like, I, I did it for this reason and nobody understands it. And so like, you can't, you have to have some some acceptance of the the like once you put it in the world that what other people see it in it is out of your control. Well, I think that I make things, and I think if I can generalize, artists make things. We have an itch to scratch, or something that hurts that has to be resolved, some emotional childhood issue, whatever. And when you understand it, it goes away. 
And that's why, like with the cocoons, when I hung them in this 30-foot high church and the, the glass was no longer in the cages, the spirit had escaped from the confines of, of the flesh, then I no longer, then that was it. I never blew glass again. And I was observant enough to recognize that, oh, I no longer have to do this. And, and that's why I don't title my work, is that other people will come, I use universal images, and people will see my roots, and they bring their own relationship and history to a universal image, which is roots. And were I to title something Prometheus or something from my childhood or something, I would alienate the art disenfranchised or uninitiated. And when people come to my studio or see my work, there's one word that I want to elicit, one critical word or whatever, and that's wow. If I render somebody speechless, inarticulate, uncritical, I mean, they can follow up with, you know, why wow, but whatever. All I'm looking for is wonder, that magic, opening the door to magic, like how did this happen? The madeness of my things sometimes is so incredible. People, especially in the field, look at it and say, this can't exist. You cannot have done this. And that impossibility opens the door to magic. With Once they dissect it and figure it out, once that door is open, it can never fully be shut. Once you believe in that, and that's what I'm looking for. Wonder, wow, is, is, that's it. That's all I need. We talked before the recording started about titles and how like I am the worst at titling my artwork. Like I remember being just out of my MFA and this also goes back to your whole sort of like position on like art schools and all this. And I get it now is that like I used to be incredibly pompous and arrogant, you know, Latin phrases and philosophical terms as my show titles. off. You're a show oh, off. It- It was horrible. I mean, I look back on it and I'm like, what an arrogant little shit I was. And you're you're alienated the people that don't know that stuff. You're trying to show you deserve to be up there. But the point of the lecture is to bridge the gap between you and the people in those seats. And why not let the buyer title it? Because something resonated in them. Let them put a word or phrase to it. And then they own it. Why not? Then it resonates more for them. It's for them. It's no longer for you. I just consider that as a possibility. I love that idea because, again, it also just sort of takes a little bit of an added pressure off of me because one of the things that like drives me nuts in the arts industry as a whole these days is – the sheer amount of things that we're expected to do as artists. Like, so like, not only do we have to make amazing, beautiful artwork, but then we have to do social media, websites, art fairs, get a gallery, schmooze curators, do all this kind of stuff, like, and title our work and write grant proposals or RFPs or residency proposals. I don't do any of the things you just listed. Not a one. I don't do art fairs. And yet you are far more successful than I am. So like maybe I should just be ignoring everything I think is right and listening more towards you. So I think you're doing this po- these podcasts because you need the instruction, not your listeners. So why not start listening and start off by letting your the buyers title your stuff. I mean, I do say like steel roots, which is a metaphor. Or steel waters for the, the, I now make the waterfalls in steel because that makes them permanent and things that I can actually sell or have in museums. Steel waters to me resonates 
still waters run deep, which is quiet power. And I like that. So I call them steel waters, which is, doesn't really limit. It describes what they are. Or the bone wall. or Because a wall is an iconic sense of one side or the other, life, death, whatever. But I don't think it's taking it away from the viewer's experience. It just gives them a referential name. But let them, let them give it a try. Take your own advice. I, I love it. I, I think it's great because I can't tell you how many times like I've been at an exhibition somewhere and I'm like, oh, this work is really beautiful. And then I read the title and I'm like, oh, that ruined it for me. Your person isn't so supposed to matter in the work. And I'm not saying the work has to be vacuous, but like what's the Sistine Chapel painting called that Michelangelo d did? It does, I'm sure it has a name. I'm sure it does. I don't, I don't know. It. I don't know it. And and that's, I think, allows people to, you know, obviously, you know, people know what it is, but you and I are probably the only pe two people that don't, you know, let it float out there and then let people reel it in with their own name. So anyway, a bit of advice. I, I think it's great. Like, it, again, because like with all the different things that we're expected to do these days as artists, uh, that the idea of sort of taking one of them out of the equation, I'm all for it. And I, I really don't like when they force me to say untitled, like in catalogs and all that. Do they force you? Ugh. So I'll use the series, Steel Roots, but then I won't number them because they're not made in order and I wouldn't know what the order is. So I really do resist that. And I'm sure archivists and art historians will not like, you know, some of the moves I've made. But it, I think it has helped it resonate in people's, like the letter ball, the syntax. Are you familiar with that? It's the ball is six feet. It's all these letters welded together. It's 2000 hours of welding. That's one man year in the piece. And it's just called syntax. It just kind of describes it's about language. Yeah. I mean, it's great advice. And I, yeah, I should listen to it more. But yes, back to your point about like, I created this podcast to, so because I needed to learn. Absolutely, I did. Because I've been in my ivory tower of academia teaching for the you know better part of two decades. And the honest truth is, I have no idea how the art world works right now. And I just, so I thought, what better way to learn about how the art world works than to ask people who are doing a good job at it? Well, you know who knows the most? The guy with the most keys, which is usually the maintenance guy. He'll, behind the scenes, how everything's done and listen to that listen to his discourse on it the guy with the most keys is really essential you know power in a museum or something and and deserves listening to absolutely i totally agree yeah all right well thank you very much for taking the time my pleasure thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation we would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of the mission for this podcast. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee.
As many of you all know, the arts is often supported by grants, and so we appreciate the support of an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Mm-hmm.